Welcome back to Geek Life, the indie comics podcast on Pandamanga.com. I'm your host, JP. As always with me are my fearless co-hosts, Marcus. I worry that if I die and come back as a ghost, I'm going to look strikingly similar to Slimer from Ghostbusters. And the Brian. I'm worried that I'll look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love that unplanned magic. Today we're talking about Stalker Donning the Mask, written and lettered by Bradley Potts, illustrated by Trevor Von Eden and Danny Foz, colors by Blake Wilkie and George Freeman. Stalker Donning the Mask, or Stalker, I guess I'm sure that Donning the Mask is just the subtitle for this one. I think ongoingly it's just Stalker. Stalker. It's an origin story. So it's it's an yeah. origin story, yeah, yeah. So Stalker is is about, well, I guess it's, it's about a, a family. And sort of a lineage. I don't know if it ever actually talked about people beyond the first stalker that they explained being stalker. I don't think no. that that's what it was. I think that it was just the mom. So anyway, so the story is about Carrie. She is the daughter of the original stalker, stalker being like this masked superhero, you know, but except it's not really super, just a masked vigilante, really. Yes. I mean, I think later on they talk about sort of in the periphery there being people that actually do have superhero powers. And she runs into a group of them at one point later on, Carrie does. but. Not not really featured too heavily in this story. It's really more about a group of masked vigilantes. Anyway, so you've got Carrie. She's the main character. And her parents, or her mother in particular, has a bit of a colorful history. She used to be a masked vigilante. She got out of it when she got married, had a child, just kind of moved on with her life. But later on, her sort of main nemesis comes along and finds her. Mr. Thorne. Mr. Thorne. After he's been in prison for a long time, very much because of her and her previous partner, Public Defender. The Public Defender. The. My the. bad. Is it the? I just see PD and Public yeah, Defender. Yeah, Public Defender. Yeah. yeah, so Public Defender. Anyway. Um, registered superhero. He's a registered superhero. Pete. Pete the Public Defender. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, PPD. So a little PPD over here. Anyway, so yeah. So basically, uh, Carrie's mom, Veronica, she used to be Stalker or The Stalker, right? And she, she used to run around with Public Defender. And the two of them were a masked vigilante pair putting bad dudes in prison and shit like that. It was a secret to everyone else in her life until one night her husband sees her, or her, her future husband sees her with her partner, Pete, who she's basically pretending to be employed by him. He's a lawyer, right? Which kind of perfectly positions him to be like in the know as to people who need to be put behind bars, but the system sort of fails. It's, this comic has a lot of familiar territory, like a lot of familiar territory. Would you say cliches? I wouldn't say cliches so much as tropes, you know, although the, those terms are probably kind of similes at this point. Hmm. You know what I mean? But but I don't know. Um, so so that's kind of the groundwork, right? Her parents end up her, her mother used to be a masked vigilante later on in life. She put that away and then her past comes back to haunt her, literally killing her and her husband. And then the daughter ticks up the mantle and she's trying to hunt down Thorne and take out these people that this long running villain that her mom and her previous partner worked with. And now she's working with Public Defender, who's, you know, like gotten a lot older, has got a little gray in the hair, you know, yeah. and basically puts her through the paces of all this training and Three stuff. years of training. Serious training. No, I thought it was five. Was it five? Okay. I don't remember, but it was years of training, years of training, you know, years of training with learning how to use weapons, learning how to do martial arts stuff, survival, all that kind of shit. So pretty, pretty cool, actually. Anyway, so that's kind of the premise. I don't want to give away too much of the sort of end game or, or some of the intrigue going on. There's a twists and turns a little bit, but it's deep into the story where you really start to see some of that stuff. So again, we're talking about Stalker donning the mask. Marcus, what did you think about the story? It was okay. I don't think it's something that I would necessarily write home about. I think the issue with it is uh, that I feel like it's nothing that I haven't seen before. It's been done a lot and... The tropes, as you said, you know, yeah. the, the the parents die and then she becomes a vigilante to avenge them. It's like, that's the most popular one out there. I mean, that's, that's Batman. Yeah. It um, is kind of cool that her mother was already a masked vigilante and it's her past coming back to get her. But mm -hmm. again, your past comes back to haunt you is sort of another long, well-tread trope. I think superheroes now are, are particularly hard to do for anyone who's independent because they're just so well-covered. Yeah. by yeah. the big two i mean the big two have lots of lots of titles covering superheroes that's what they do oh yeah if you go into a comic well if you ask your average non-comic book fan on the street you know what are comic books about they're going to be like oh people in tights and superheroes and superpowers and flying and super strength and laser beam eyes and all that shit like that's that's going to be what pops out of their mouth mm -hmm. and so it is i would say ambitious and i guess from a perspective sort of worthy of recognition that they're willing and ballsy enough 
to take on such well-worn territory and hope to do something new with it. And there are moments where it's kind of like, oh, that was cool, or that was a little different, or, oh, that was not where I was expecting it to go, or something like that. But on the whole, it's very familiar. Yeah. Which it doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it's real familiar. And at some point, it's just kind of like, man, I've seen this before. You know, it's not like it's poorly made, not like it's a bad idea, but it's just too familiar to feel fresh. Exactly. And like I said before, it's, it's, I don't want to, I don't want the writer to think that it's that they're writing bad stuff. It's just they're writing stuff that's been done a lot. And it's yeah. going to be extremely hard to come out with something that the new original that's going to excite readers. I think that most of the time, successful creator owned or independent superhero comics typically come from what I said, creator owned more than independent. And by that, I mean more the realm of the big indie comic publishers image idw dynamite pop cow because it's the realm of people that have already made a name for themselves have been on the inside of the comic book superhero creating process and have over the years been like man i really wish we could do this or man i've always always wanted to do that or it's just they're so familiar with it because it's literally their job and they spent years working on it. And then someone like Mark Millar comes along, someone, you know, that kind of thing where it's kind of like, you know, I've always wanted to do a superhero story like this. I've spent so much time doing what Marvel wanted me to do or DC wanted me to do or whatever, that they have built up this kind of like, man, something that nobody's really talked to before or spoken to before or a spin that people haven't done yet, this I'd like to do. And then they come in and attack something that's a pretty well-worn territory, like we said, but they attack it with such incredible professional quality. And they attack it with such insider knowledge of like how they can spin things to make it a little bit different because they've literally been the guys writing and or drawing the actual big two comics that we're basically saying all these tropes are coming from. So I feel like it's ballsy for an independent comic artist or writer to come in and try and do a superhero story and expect it for it to be anything but just the same old, same old, what we've seen and heard and read a million times. Yeah. And I mean, there, I feel like there was attempt here to make it a little more gritty than, than normal, but it went to an area where I have in the past on this podcast said, I, I find distasteful. Yeah. Yes. I feel like there's, this is the third pod, uh, comic that I've read since I've been doing this podcast now that throws rape in there at some point. Yeah. And I just, I can't get into it to me. That doesn't make it gritty to me. That's just, to me, it's an obvious attempt at trying to make it something that it's new or something to the next level that doesn't work out. It's just, I just don't want to read it. It turns me off completely. It tries to add more darkness and issues to the character. And it's just, you know, I don't know. It's too uncomfortable for me. I think a lot of the time when a writer is trying to think of a way to do something that is heavy, dark, going to scar the character, some kind of powerful plot point. A lot of the time they go for something like that. And it's, it's almost lazy. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say it's totally lazy because it's not necessarily. This is like nuclear weapons in the war to make your characters depthy and powerful and angsty. It's like it's way more challenging to make them interesting and have this sort of darkness to them that draws you in and makes it sense that they're on the fringes doing the vigilante thing. I mean, you always want to have these characters that have a little bit of a dark side a lot of the time. Not always, but a lot of the time. And going like, and she was raped. It's kind of like, I mean, it works, but it's kind of like, really? Like that just feels sort of like the easy way out. You know, it just seems kind of like, like I said, it feels kind of like a lazy way to add a big punch to something. Now, I think in the other podcast, the other comic that we read, I think one of them was Anapocalypse. (laughs) And uh, I can't remember what the other one was, was, where there was rape involved, but that Uh, was under the flesh and it was zombie rape. Okay. Which was even worse. Well, and then there was when we did um, Love and Rockets and oh God. Oh yeah. Love and Rockets has lots of sodomy. Although I don't know if it was necessarily rape. There was some. Was I there for that one? No, no, it was episode Literally episode. Yeah. It was like in the beginning. Anyway. Well, at least in the case of an apocalypse and under the it, flesh, no, not an under the flesh, oh, really? because on, under the flesh is a little different. I'll tell you why in a second. This one and an apocalypse are full with murder as well. Yeah. I don't know why the murder doesn't bother me as much. And the rape really just dissuades me from the story. It's a hot button. It is. It immediately makes us go, oh, that's awful because it is like so awful. It's so much rape in fiction is so much worse. And so much more distasteful and disturbing 
than violence and overt, you know, overt sexuality or whatever it is that you happen to feel like is going too far, depending on your sort of moral sensibilities and proclivities and whatever. But I'm pretty confident that rape immediately makes everybody go Ooh, and cringe a little, you know, and that's kind of why I feel like because it's such a incredibly disgusting, distasteful act across the board, regardless of your sensitivities. I just feel like it's kind of lazy. It feels like it's a really easy way to have something really horrible and powerful and potent and grabbing happen. Because no matter what, no matter how good or bad the comic book is or whatever, as soon as a character gets raped, it's kind of like, I want the people that did that to pay. I want the person that, that was raped to overcome it and become strong and kick ass. And all of a sudden you're like in their corner, you know? And I just feel like it's kind of lazy. I'm, I don't know. I'm repeating myself at this point, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you were saying. No, I was just I was kind of curious as to the psyche behind why murder and violence is okay and rape is not. But I think you hit it right in the nose. It's just that it it's on it's on a different level, basically what it comes down to. I agree. Yeah, it's really vile. It's just it's uh, makes you feel kind of icky, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the one. OK, so the thing that I would contribute as being original for this, yeah. um, which I don't know, I, I could be wrong. I'm not I'm not thinking too far into other comic history right now, but. Um, there seem, there's, seems to be a lot of distrust amongst the heroes, a lot of backstabbing amongst the heroes that doesn't necessarily branch out into villains that, that might be, you know, steering away from what is the norm in terms of superhero comics. Yeah. It didn't seem like the superheroes were all really working together. It didn't seem like they were buddy, buddy, especially specifically the superheroes really felt like the masked vigilantes were getting in their way. And maybe causing more trouble than they were, you know, helping because yeah. they just kind of run in there and bah, and then there's like a super group. It's like, dude, you just ruined this like months long sting that we were working on. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, you know, yeah, but that's happens in police things anyways, you know, procedure. totally. But that's yeah. it's kind of cool that they bring that feel to it because so much of the time it feels like superheroes like somehow they're like on the superhero network and they know each other and they're up to sh- and they like know what each other are up to and working together a lot of the time it feels like. And it was kind of cool to really get the sense of there's more going on than our main character's world, more going on in this world, the world of Stalker, than the immediate situation and circumstances around Stalker, that she's just a person in this big living, breathing world, which I thought was cool. They didn't really go into what the other heroes were doing, what the other superheroes were doing. They didn't really touch on that. They just were there and she got in their way one time and they gave her crap for it and then they moved on. And that I liked. I agree with that. I really like that because it does make it feel like she's part of a bigger world instead of so focused. And a lot of indie comics, a lot of new, younger, amateur, independent writing, it uh, it, it doesn't give the sense of a world beyond the circumstances that the story is focusing on. And so, so that's you're saying nice. that like it's it's a good example of this is her story and it also incorporates things that are happening that are interacting with her story that not, aren't necessarily exactly having to do with plot development in right. her storyline. Right. Well, okay. So for example, I've been starting to learn more about how dungeon masters and DMs and GMs, they do their, how they do their thing, how they write good stories, how they come up with quests and things like that, how they create a world that feels real and rich, and then how they manage to make something cool happen, yet still have characters that they literally have no control over. And uh, I've been doing a little bit of that and learning about it. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is what's recommended is to come up with a handful of situations and things and, and, you know, people with motivations and whatnot. And then imagine what would happen were the the players, the player characters, the sort of the random element, if they just weren't around. How would things go in this world separate from the characters, the main characters, essentially, right? The player characters are the main characters in the role playing game, right? And it's kind of interesting because it sheds some light on writing in general, is that instead of having the luxury of being able to control what the main characters are going to do, you have to build out the world around them more so that you can go like, say one of your player characters are like, hey, um, that quest that you're trying to get me hooked into, yeah, I don't want to do that. I want to go over here. What's in the supermarket? And you as the, the, the game master either have to have figured out what's there or be able to have a good enough understanding of the world to be able to go like, mm, this is what's in there and have it feel right. And I think that Putting that kind of pressure on you to build that much of a big, rich world and or have that kind of an understanding of the world that you're writing and then bringing it to a, a story where you do have control over your characters, it allows you to have uh, things like that scene happen where she runs into someone else who's doing their own probably very compelling thing, an interesting, fascinating story that could be probably a comic all of its own, and they just happen to cross paths. And it allows for 
in a role-playing game, it allows your player characters to feel like, wow, this is a big world where there's things going on, and I really could go over here or over there, and the and the game master has figured out all this stuff that's happening, it's living, it's breathing, and, you know, there's things going on that I'll never see if I happened to go this way instead of that way. And as a reader, it's kind of cool to come across fiction that does a good job of making us feel that way. So I feel like that that's definitely one of the high points. I think if I were to, you know, kind of generalize, sum up my thoughts on on this story, it's that... It's a good story. It's just done a lot. Honestly, I didn't like the story. I Battle Axe cometh. Yes. Bum, you know, ba, ba, ba. Joe isn't <laughs> here, so I am holding on to the Battle Axe until somebody who is worthy to wield it comes along. I just thought, I don't know, like I felt that the characters were pretty unrelatable and underdeveloped. And I felt that Stalker is like a character that's so arrogant and so angry and rash that... If this was one of the big two comics, that character would either be dead or a villain in a short time. And that may be where things are headed. I don't know. It's just there are just some weird inconsistencies for me with the story. Like, okay, I get the whole registered superheroes thing as a plot device, but that's kind of fun. I like that. That that is fun. But they say that the new stalker isn't registered. And that irks me because, okay. I actually looked it up while we were um, reading the uh, while we were talking. Stalker was training for six years, and then on her first mission, she goes on for about a month. So you're telling me at some point in this, public defender who's been doing this for thirty years never started the process of getting her registered. So she's an unregistered person, even though he's trying. Well, to... Well, I think it makes sense that she's not registered specifically because she's trying to don the mask of a character or a a vigilante that is dead that people think is gone and there's that element of surprise where she pops out of the shadows and goes hey thorn i'm back bitch and like comes to attack he's like but i killed you you know like i think that was in a way what their plan was was to basically train her up in a vacuum so that nobody knows that she's there what's up and then she's sort of operating under the radar and you know back out like wait i thought stalker was dead well she's back what's going on i think I think that's why that happened. Does that make sense? I guess. It felt to me like the registered superhero thing wasn't at that big of a part of the story. Like it was just the device used to kill the original stalker, basically. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which is why when she meets up with that superhero team, right. they're like, oh, yeah, she's an unregistered person. We should turn her in. It's like, what's the point in that? You know? I felt like... Because they're playing by the rules, but she has a lot of reasons not to play by the rules. As a matter of fact, now that I think about it, Marcus is right. The whole reason why she got... I mean, like you were saying, it's a plot device. The whole reason why her mom died is because the bad guys got a hold of the registered vigilante or registered hero... uh, What is it called? The registered hero paperwork and found out where the mom was. You know, and it's kind of like, of course she's not going to, I mean, like, that's the whole reason her life got turned upside down and her parents die. Like, it makes even more sense that she's going to want to be as far off the radar as possible. There'd be, I don't think that you could, she'd ever want to be registered. I don't know. It's just, there are things like that. And then things like the public defender pretty much implying, well, he was thinking it when, during one of his conversations with Stalker, that doing the superhero thing, it's getting on his Murtaugh list, which... To explain, if you've ever watched the Lethal Weapon movies, um, Danny Glover's Detective Murtaugh, he keeps saying, I'm getting too old for this shit. And so he's grooming her to be his yeah, replacement. To replace him, yeah. But he has a daughter who he's also been training. So Yeah, but the daughter doesn't do as the daughter's more support side. I mean, she's in there, she's up to shit, she's kicking ass, sure. But she's not quite the same as as public defender or stalker. I think public defender and stalker serve more of the infantry soldier side of things, whereas she seemed a little more espionage, a little more support, a little more tech. Okay. I kind of thought she was being, she was his next sidekick. But from what I, I interpreted from the comic, which now goes to talk to, uh, to Bradley that, you know, his comic can be interpreted different ways yeah. is that, uh, since the original stalker died, his daughter became his sidekick. And then right. was Anne was her name. Carrie. Carrie, sorry. Carrie, yeah, uh, main character. Carrie, Carrie decided yeah. to be the new stalker, yeah. and then Public Defender really didn't know what to do with her, because now he had a psychic. He had his daughter already, and now she's... Well, so excess. maybe he was hoping that his daughter and the new stalker would work together as a team, just like he and the original stalker did. I mean, maybe. some of that stuff isn't totally well, I mean, isn't totally explained, but 
who the hell knows what's going on in his head or how things would go. I think that I think we're getting into nitpicking territory, Mr. Battleaxe, big time. I don't know. It it just irked me. That's just maybe it is nitpicking, but it was something that I'm not in my head, folks. <laughs> uh, well, I think just to sort of put a final thought on this before we take a quick break and listen to a little bit of music from AirPlus Recordings, that there's a ton of story here. There really is. It's a surprisingly large amount of story. And I was surprised at how entertaining it was. Again, it's very familiar. So it's kind of maybe diffuses or diminishes some of its impact or lasting appeal or really initial appeal, honestly. But the more I read, the more I liked it. And that's a good thing, I think. I do think that it'd be crazy hard to get into this were you only able to have access to issue one. This comic yeah. book falls flat on its face in that capacity. If you don't have everything that we had, which is the first, I guess, maybe four. two or three issues worth. It's four. Books one through four. Okay. And then the like co- original concept one. You would easily need at least the first two to three issues to even begin to feel kind of like, oh, okay, here's where we're going. I really care what's going on because it has this very weird sort of Tarantino-esque disjointed storytelling where it starts in present time and then she reminisces and it goes back to present time and then interme- and it just it jumps around a lot chronologically. It's not ever unclear where they are in time, but it does mess with your sense of urgency for what's going on. It definitely does. And actually, I... I don't want to be contrary, but it, for me, a little bit, a little bit, although I'm easily confused, a little bit, it lost me. During yeah, every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, me too. I had to go back and read the initial part once or twice because I first thought that Carrie's mother was the kid who um, saw her parents get murdered. And I was like, is it history repeating itself? And then I was like doing the math on the dates. I'm like, no, that can't work. So I kind of realized. Yeah, because she talks about her parents getting killed. And then the young girl that her parents get killed that starts the original stalkers quest against Thorn happens immediately after that. And you're like, we're doing backstory, but we're not doing recent backstory that you were just talking about in monologue. You're doing way backstory to talk about. It's just it, it was it jumped. Like I said, it's sort of Tarantino jumped around a lot and it could get confusing but, you know, by the time you're finishing the book, it all makes sense. It all works. But that's the thing is that you need a lot of the story to have been read before it all sort of settles in. You're like, oh, yeah, I get I, that. I completely agree with yeah. I now that I've finished this, the, the story arc, I get it. Yeah. And it, it mean, just, and it was it was entertaining and satisfying and 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 good. I mean, it wasn't poorly made. It was it was no, good. No, it was no, good. No. It was just kind of like, again, another superhero story that. You know, brought a lot of quality to the table, but just didn't bring enough new to make it be like, oh, here we go. This is what I'm talking about. I want to read more of this. Yeah. So I um, personally, there was in the back of this that we had uh, donning the mask um, document that we had. It had something called Stalker the First Night, sure. which is kind of it was made in the 90s. I guess it was the original concept for this. I enjoyed that and that character much more than yeah, I that did was really cool. This book, yeah, definitely. I mean, sometimes the back matter can be as entertaining or more entertaining than the rest of the book. You never know. So, anyway, I think on the whole, I'm glad. I'm glad I read it. I'm not sorry I did. I read it, and I think it was one of those things where I probably would not have chosen this had it not dropped in our mailbox and you know been an opportunity for us to look at. But I'm actually, I actually enjoyed it in the end. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and take a quick musical break and we get back? We'll talk a little bit more about Stalker digging into the art of Stalker Donning the Mask by Bradley Potts. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us.
Welcome back to Geek Life. This is the current battle axe, the Brian. And we want to tell you about a nice little thing. We're sponsored by Audible. And you can go to audibletrial.com. That was the worst segue ever. You're right. You're it failing. was. I failed. I wish I could do that again. Continue. But I think But he pronounced the words really well. We yeah. It was like in Finding Nemo when they were talking whale. We <laughs> so, Brian, tell us about Audible. Yeah, what's Audible. that? Okay, so for people like me who are out and about all the time, I love reading books, but I just don't have the time. This allows me to listen to it on my commutes, when I'm running, everything else. Uh, when you're putting fools in their places. When I'm putting fools in their places, you know, when I'm trying to hide my mistresses from my other mistresses. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I went there. Deal with it. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where it makes it a nice, convenient way to enjoy more books. Dude, it's such an efficient way to consume information, whether it's for entertainment or for knowledge. Dude, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. You can listen while you're on your commute. Like you said, you can listen while you're doing other things like art, while you're working on something. I mean, it doesn't matter as long as for me, as long as I'm not writing As long as I'm not writing or trying to read something else, as long as there's no other words happening, I'm golden. I can listen to Audible and just rock on. Yeah. Jessica Biel could have listened to it on her iPod shovel while she was killing vampires in Blade Trinity. She could have. She could have. She should have, really. She was wasting that valuable time. She could have been cramming information. I don't know. Audible was... Audible was wasting a great opportunity for marketing right there. <laughs> What's she listening to? Trip hop, hardcore, whatever the hell they said. And Audible. What's up? <laughs> so if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash geek life, you can get a free audiobook download and try one month of their awesome service for free. Along with the free month and free book for the whole month that you are there, you're going to get to have 30% off of their entire catalog, which is huge. It's like 200,000 books at this point. It's insane. It keeps going up. I get these emails every once in a while that sort of update the pitch, you know, and yeah. like it's grown from like 150,000 books to like 200,000. It's like so many books, dude. It's so many books. But if you don't know where to start, we've got a recommendation for you. Mm, tell us more. Okay. So our recommendation this episode is American Gods, the 10th anniversary special by Neil Gaiman. So Neil Gaiman? Neil Gaiman! Neil Gaiman! So this is from the publisher's summary right here. For the three years Shadow spent in prison, all he wanted was to get back to the loving arms of his wife and stay out of trouble for the rest of his life. But days before his release, he learned that his wife had been killed in an accident and his world becomes a colder place. Bum bum bum! On a plane ride home to the funeral... Shadow meets a man who calls himself Mr. Wednesday. Da-da-da-da. A self-declared badass name. It is Mr. Wednesday. A self-declared grifter who offers Shadow a job. Da-da-da-da-da. Shadow, a man with nothing to lose, except too much coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so much coffee. But he soon learns that Wednesday's schemes will be far more dangerous than he ever could have imagined. American Gods is a dark and kaleidoscopic journey deep into myths across an American at once eerily familiar and utterly alien. So this book also is about a story of gods, both old and new. So So we're talking like Norse gods? We're we're talking talking Norse gods. We're talking all the gods. All the gods. And so it's like that episode on Supernatural. Yes. Where all the gods get together and they'll be like, yo, what are we going to do about this Lucifer guy? He's a dick. Yeah, pretty much. It's, yeah, but Captain America says there's only one god, and he's pretty sure they don't dress like that. Do I have to disagree with Captain America now? <laughs> sure, why not? Neil Gaiman does. Neil Gaiman Neil does. Neil Gaiman! Neil Gaiman! But yes, this is actually my favorite. <laughs> oh my god, I just realized I'm doing the Matt Damon thing with Neil Gaiman. That's where yes, that came from. Yes, that is why. exactly what's, what's going happening. on. Neil Gaiman! <laughs> but this is probably my favorite book of all time. Um, really? Yes. Neil Gaiman is an absolutely incredible author. And so this 10th anniversary special, first of all, Two different things that are different about this from the novel that I actually read, which is, well, one, it's an audio format, but um, <laughs> no, it's 12,000 words longer. 
Did he come back and write more or did so he add how, more of the original manuscript? How it worked was he sent to an editor his original unedited manuscript, the final script, and a few other notes and said, okay, put this together for a special edition. There was only 750 printed and until the 10th anniversary special came out, you couldn't get it. So this is actually kind of an exciting opportunity yeah. to get in on something that was rare for a long time. Yeah. And on top of That's it, awesome. it's That's a awesome. full cast production. Really? So it's kind yes. of like a radio drama. It's like a radio drama. Sound effects and everything or just the full cast? No, not sound effects, but full cast. So That's everybody awesome. is. That's awesome. Yeah. It's absolutely an amazing It's a book. well-loved book. Yeah. For a long time now. Yes. Over very years, ambitious. Very, very, very unique. It won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards for best sci-fi and best fantasy books. So people weren't quite sure nice. what cool. section to put it in. But yeah, it's... It's a great... You want, you want to know why? Neil Gaiman! Neil Gaiman! is a badass. I refuse um, to make that noise. But yeah, America... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of disrespectful to the man. But um, yeah. It? No, it's no, not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, it's You know, you've been telling me about this book for a long time. I think maybe it's finally time for you to read it. Yes. Or, or listen to it as Or it listen were. to it. Enjoy it. I shall enjoy it. So yes, go so to... So what was it called again? American Gods by Neil Gaiman. And you can go to uh, audibletrial.com forward slash geek life and pick up American Gods. Do yourself a favor. Listen to it. Trust me. You'll like it. Thank you later. You'll thank me later. Yeah. You know what happened in like the last 10 minutes? <laughs> I've gotten goofy. Something transformed in JP where he's all of a sudden like, now we're going to be having fun. <laughs> the caffeine finally has the hit JP. I, I had like seriously easily eight cups of coffee with breakfast. At Babs Cafe, in which is California. awesome, it's off the hook. Babs Cafe. <laughs> oh my God! I'm gonna tie you down. <laughs> you have to get through me first. That's not gonna be that hard. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Go for the left leg. Yeah. Don't do it. It's a trap. It's <laughs> a trap. I'm right for. <laughs> We're going to start telling fart stories in a second. <laughs> it's just going to go down. All right. Okay, Let's moving get on. Back All on right, track. so we've, we've been talking about Stalker. <laughs> Sorry, Bradley. Lost. When I went off the rails there a little bit. All right. So we've been talking about Stalker, Donnie the Mask, written by Bradley Potts. We talked a lot about the story. Definitely some mixed opinions. I think on the whole, you know, enjoyable, but sort of familiar territory. Um, and, and before we get into the art, we had a little chat in the break that I think we'd like to bring up again. We were wishing kind of that we had recorded that actually so we were talking about how it was a little challenging to talk about that book because there wasn't anything in there that we were like oh it's terrible but there wasn't a lot that was like Except wow you know it was sort of middle of the road competent you know which is it's, it's sort of a harsh term to use but really it's not unfair and i, I think miss would finish my monologue here what we were saying was is that in the independent comic world the reader, as someone who's an independent comic enthusiast, which if you're listening to the Geek Life podcast, the independent comic podcast, the indie comic podcast, you're, you're probably interested in indie comics. So you must know already, dear listener, that you have to have a little bit of compassion and leniency for some of the rough edges uh, in a comic book, especially when you're dealing with independent comics. And because of that, indie comics have to find a different way to differentiate themselves than just pure corporate polish. It's hard because as a comic book enthusiast in general, you get used to corporate level polish with the big two and really even the creator own stuff that we're seeing these days. High, high, high polish. So because independent comics don't tend to have that level of polish, when they come through and they do a good job, competent, not too confusing, art is understandable, interesting, cool at times, but it never dips into the like, wow, that was awful. Then beyond that, it's all about how does this comic differentiate itself from what's come before. It has to do something interesting, unique. How does it set itself apart from what we've seen before? Because if it's kind of like a lot of the stuff we've seen before, it's just not as high production value. Why are we reading it? You know what I mean? And so when someone is coming along and they're like, hey, I'd like to tell this story and they're going to do it in an independent comic like that, the writing's probably not going to be as sharp as someone who's full-time corporate art writer for Marvel, DC, or whatever. The art's probably not going to be as tight, similar sort of situation. And so they're going to have to come out of left field with something that's like, this is a new idea. This is a new concept. We're taking things in a different direction. We're investigating something that's not real familiar. And so when someone comes in and does a comic about something that's already very familiar, 
it's crazy hard for them to stand out because it's a flooded market. Doing a comic, an independent comic, for me, it's all about like that's wild and out there and weird and different in concept, in story, in art. That's what I want because I know going into it that it's going to be a little rough around the edges. And I'm okay with that. I've made my peace with that. I'm not expecting what I expect from a Wolverine comic or a Spider-Man comic or a whatever. I'm expecting something else. And I'm willing to dance a little bit with the creators and let them have some rough edges as long as they deliver something that's different. And that's, I think, at the core of what we were trying to say about specifically Marcus and I. Brian's just a jerk. Deal um, with it. I mean, <laughs> but I think that's at the core of what, what Marcus and I were, were jamming about with Stalker is that it's not a bad book, but it's not a real different book. And it's a little rough around the edges. And so being rough around the edges in a very flooded market devalues the comic in a big fat way. Whereas being a little rough around the edges in an incredibly different, new, unique sort of zone, your value goes up because there's less of you, you know? And so I think that's the challenge with independent comics, specifically talking about superheroes. I think that's the challenge. It's a super, super flooded market into the superhero stories or vigilante stories. It kind of feels like this could have been a sort of how to make independent comic books, something that you'd see in like a, an educational book of what to make comics. Sure. Because it's showing you the basics of, of what a story can be. But I mean, often I, I have never read a book on how to draw something or how to write something that I was like, well, the example in this book just blew me away. It's all it does the job of showing you how it should be set it's up. It's very competent. It does yeah. the job. It's not unclear. It's not bad, but it's not like it doesn't have that wow factor. So. And if I was looking for an independent comic book, I'm going to be looking for something. Honestly, I, I, as someone who reads independent comic books, I kind of look for things that aren't superhero related. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as someone who reads comics in general, I'm a little burnt out on the superhero thing. Yeah. There's so much for so... I mean, we said, like I said before, it's a flooded market. It's, and, there's so many damn superhero comics So we do have that there. bias going in, too. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, this isn't fair, actually. The only other time that I don't get slowing you down at all. You're like, this is no, fair. To I'm be still going to say it. Well, to be a dick. <laughs> to be a dick. Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. Marcus does not approve. Marcus <laughs> Neil really Gaiman. does not Neil approve. Neil Gaiman blessed. Um, Shiva comedian. No, I'm just kidding. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. So the only time that we've ever actually reviewed an independent comic that was a traditional superhero comic was something called Flying Sparks back in episode 16. Yeah. And that one was rough around the edges, but it had a unique, a couple of unique twists. Yeah. It was all about the fact that the alter egos of the superhero and the villain were in love with each other without realizing that they were a superhero and a villain. And the superheroine, her only power was flight. She didn't have anything else going yeah, for Yeah, so, her. I mean, it was kind of like Catman, Woman, and Batman. Oh, wait, shit. No, it, it really wasn't. <laughs> um, the closest thing that I can bring it to is um, uh, books by the DeLuna brothers called Ultra, which is all right. Um, he, sh he shrugged his shoulders there, guys. Yeah, but that's the closest that I can think of where that really just does happen yeah that was an interesting one and i think that one gripped me a lot more because a lot of it was honestly it felt like it was more about the alter egos the civilian side of yes. the superheroes than the superheroes it was way more about their lives trying to hide and pretend that they aren't superheroes than the actual superheroing and villainy which i thought was kind of an interesting spin anyway so you know we just kind of wanted to get that little behind the scenes chat that we had in between things off of our chest because we felt like it was relevant. So let's go ahead and talk about the art of Stalker donning the mask. So Brian, let's start with you, Battle Axer. All right. I thought the art was solid. And moving on. I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, I don't have too much to say. The one thing that I did notice that kind of irked me was there's inconsistent eye color. So for Carrie, for example, um, page 38, her eyes are brown. Page 40, her eyes are blue. Then it goes back to brown and amberish color for the next few pages till page 54 where her eyes are green. Then it goes back to brown. There's another section where her eyes are blue again. Hmm. Another character, Danica, who is a girl that they're supposed to rescue. Her eye color, when you first see her and her hair color is brown and her eye color is brown and she has longer hair. So do you when think this is maybe a victim of the fact that they had multiple colorists? Possibly. Because, um, you know, there's not a clear like, oh, this is a new colorist. It looks kind of consistent through the yeah. whole thing. So who knows? Maybe page to page, it was 
different person, maybe five pages and then one page. I mean, like, who knows how they split it up? You'd sort of assume that one person was doing it for a time and then they couldn't keep going. And the next person came in and tried to make it consistent with what was already there. But you never know. So that could be what that's about. Not yeah. that it makes it okay, but that I think that could be interesting because yeah. you don't normally see like multiple colorists. You'll see multiple inkers sometimes, multiple writers almost all the time, but multiple colorists, that's not something I see all the time because that's such a, colorists have such a unique thumbprint or fingerprint. You know what I mean? Like they, they colorists, like it, a colorist looks like a particular colorist, you know? See, I would have thought the same thing. I would have thought that about. Well, I mean, it's also like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But. I originally was thinking like, oh, colors, colors, whatever. But the more we read, the more it's like, no, color really brings its own thing to the table. And a colorist can dramatically change and, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. improve or worsen the uh, the actual, you know, underwork. So, well, yeah, it was just something that I like just yeah, that was totally note, just like it was plain as day to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of the color, I, I liked the palette. It, uh, it does a really good job of setting the tone. Of the scenes, but like before a word is even spoken, it's pretty, pretty successful, you know, it, and it, it's not like, oh, it's an autumn palette and it's all one palette. The palette jumps around depending on where they are, what's happening, who's there, good guys, bad guys, night scenes, not night scenes, inside a club, outside, all that. Some of the stuff in the sewers was really, was really totally cool. Really, yeah. You managed to get the reflection of the water yeah, lighting. It was really cool. The entire, like all the characters in the, in the ceiling in the room. Yeah, uh, I liked the color. I thought the color was really good. Yeah, and it I didn't mean, suffer from that everything has a soft fuzzy fade thing. Like it wasn't always like that, which nor did I can't it have, stand that. It drives me crazy. Nor but was no, it, it was you know, kind of grayed out a little bit. Yeah, it no, was it was just, good. The color yeah. was the color was really it was really good, and I liked. I very much liked how the color contributed to the tone of the comic, from page to page and scene to scene. Sometimes it feels like color is just there to fill in the blank spaces. But this, the, col the color can very much communicate a sense of tone, time of day, night, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it's way more than just like, well, this is how things look when you're in that situation. You know, a good, good color in film and comics can, can really communicate more than just where they are and what it looks like if you took a picture in that situation. Yeah. So that was, that was cool. They did a good job with that. The actual, you know, line work and ink work I thought was, for the most part, you know, really good. It's solid. Yeah. I mean, he does... He did backgrounds really well, which I have a hard time with, and like full cityscapes with the, where the perspective looks pretty much spot on. And I mean, even in the even in rooms, you know, the actual uh, you know cabinets and windows and stuff like that it ha had good perspective. You know, I pulled my ruler out and kind of thumbed around with it, and it looks it looks right. Yeah, which is impressive. A lot of the time, people just kind of go wah and wing it. You know, and sometimes that you know there's a way to, there's ways to fiddle with it to make a room not feel you know constrictive. Because sometimes it's like that. If you try and do a super duper on point perspective for inside of a room or building or whatever, it can be a little bit weird. But they did a really good job with that. It does seem to me that some of the poses were really in need of photo reference. And especially like in the action scenes. I think some of the action scenes, they didn't feel as dynamic as they could be. It felt a little bit more paper cutout y. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It just, they didn't feel as dynamic as I would have liked them to be. A little stiff. Yeah, a little stiff. There's the word. Paper cut out stiff. That's where I was going for. <laughs> uh, you know, but but the characters look cool. And the art was, you know, really clearly communicated the story. I didn't ever look at a page and not understand what was happening. Which is a huge deal because it's visual communication. You have to be able to understand what's happening on a page at, the, at a glance. And they did that very well. There was one page that I kind of was confused by, but... It's not that big of a deal. Let's hear it. What was the page? It was page number, uh, let's see here, 64. Okay. Um, so we had talked about the whole rape sequence before. Oh, we're back to this again. Okay, Brian. Yeah. No, but part of it is she's trying to rescue someone. Right. And she's like, looks into a room and sees someone. And then she later rescues somebody else. And I thought that the initial person that they showed was um, Danica, because that's kind of what she looked like in the first official picture. And then she and goes, Danica to, is Danica's the person that the kidnap victim that they're trying to save. But she apparently goes to another room and finds Danica. And for a while, I was like, wait, what the hell's going on here? Because I thought like maybe they just had a different artist draw the characters or something. But it, it oh, took that me a, confused you? Yeah, it took me just a couple minutes to realize, oh, she just walked past that room. And, and went she walked to past one. another room where someone was getting, you know, raped. Yeah. 
and you know closed the door and kind of looked away and then kept going because she was on a mission. She wasn't there to save everybody. She was there to save Danica. Right. Yeah. I, that did not confuse me. The only reason that I was confused is because the person that she didn't save looked like Danica. I guess. Actually, that kind of touches on something that I did think could use a little help is that at times it was not incredibly clear who was who on simple facial structure. I think a lot of the time it was like, well, are they wearing the right clothes? What kind of hair color do they have? What kind of outfit are they wearing? Because sometimes from scene to scene, there wasn't a lot of consistency of like, how big is their forehead? How high are their cheekbones? How far away is their nose from their mouth? Like that kind of stuff and was Stalker's a little bit- hair color is constantly changing. Yeah. Plus you throw in the fact that Stalker, Public Defender's daughter, and Stalker's mother, the original Stalker, are all kind of similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, there's a, a high chance of probability when you have that going for you as an artist that someone's going to get confused. You have to be very, very careful to find ways to differentiate the three. And in being able to have characters that look similar in basic sort of big ways, like hair color, hairstyle, basic body shape, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to differentiate them by the way their face looks. That's not easy. I think that we can all agree that a big piece of what makes a character look like, oh, that's recognizable, you know, like, oh, that's that person, is their silhouette. Something we've talked about a lot, especially when we talk more about the sort of cartoony, iconic characters. It's all about what does a silhouette look? How does that differentiate one character to the next? The more realistic you get, the more similar silhouettes will become. But that's a thing in comic books. It's a definitely an important thing to be able to do to have someone's silhouette be like, oh, that's recognizable. And I think that that's a challenge when you have characters that are so similar looking. And in a more realistic comic book style, it's, it's harder to differentiate the three of them. And I wish that one of them had long hair and one of them had really short hair or something like that. You know, something that's like, oh, okay, at a glance in an action scene where sometimes features get a little twisted and warped or something it's important to be able to go like, oh, defining feature so-and-so is this in comparison to someone else that maybe they have a similar look to. You got to have something that gives the reader like at a glance, like, oh, that's that who, who that is. Like, like swing a piece of paper in front of their face for a moment and have them be like, who's on that page? Like, you got to be able to do that. Did you think that Stalker looked Asian when she had the costume on and then white when she had it off? Yes. There were sometimes where she looked Asian just Normally, like when she's being trained to deal with psychic attacks, yeah. she totally looks like an Asian person then. But you that's know, what I mean. The actual yeah. facial structure, the way the eyes are shaped, the distance between things. You know, when you're doing art, a lot of the stuff that you learn, especially in portrait art, is measures, right? Especially if you're met, like if I'm looking at Marcus right now, there is a certain distance between his eyes, a certain distance from the base of his eye to the base of his nose, from the base of his nose to his mouth, from his mouth to the bottom of his chin, all that stuff. Those are the markers that make Marcus look like Marcus. If I mess with any of that, if I took it into Photoshop and just move things around, not to where they're comically weird looking, but just a little off, all of a sudden it's not going to look like Marcus. And it's that stuff that's really pretty particular high detail, measury kind of business that is relied upon when you're doing more realistic characters. And this is a very much a more realistic comic book. And those things aren't always consistent. Why are you putting me in Photoshop, JP? What is, what's wrong, huh? What, what do you not like? What do you not like that you see? It's not that. It's just that, you know, he's putting your face on other naked guys. That's just where it is. <laughs> so it's wow. the body that you don't like then. <laughs> Should I stop recording in the new? No, Marcus, I took a picture of you and then I replicated it and made it my background. <laughs> so it's just Marcus's it's cardboard cutouts in your bedroom. Everywhere, yes. Anyway, I think that, you know, again, like what we were saying with the writing, at the end of the day, it gets the job done. It's clear, you know, the action scenes are clear what's going on. For the most part, everything is easy to understand visually. The visual communication, the visual storytelling is successful, which is really good. But again, it, we just kind of come back to this there wasn't anything that was like, wow. There was a lot of like, okay, cool. That's working. You yeah, know, solid. Yeah, exactly. I felt like there was, I mean, if there's one thing that could have changed it, that could have made it differently, it would be some sort of personal style that was lacking. This looked like it was something that I, I could have seen from like, I don't know, uh, an 80s comic sort of thing. It had a very sort of mid to late 90s yeah. comic. But yeah, something that you would see out of straight out of DC or Marvel or image you know from a time yeah it, it looked a little like a cross between um frank miller and kevin eastman peter laird yeah. uh, somewhere in between there um which is you know great great artists and so you can't really fault them for that i just right it, but you know it, it an didn't indie, feel like yeah a huge personal style well, in indie comics it. you 
you can get away with it being like, oh, that's Marcus. Oh, that's Melissa Pagluisa. Oh, that's, you know, Jennifer Gosk. Like that's people look, I mean, like people have a very distinctive look and you don't have to have the Marvel look, you know, and and Marvel itself is way getting away from that way getting away from that you know what you know look at dimension z with captain america that whole arc was you know john romita jr and it looks like kick-ass because john romita jr looks that's his shit that's what he looks like that's how his stuff is you know when inhuman starts being done by joe madura you're like oh shit it's joe madura Madura. yeah it's exactly exactly so this does have that sort of middle of the road don't really know who it is it looks like a, a again it's like deeper into that generic superhero thing yeah so yeah any other thoughts we'd like to share about stalker before we wrap the podcast up you guys i would just say keep going and to try to throw your own personal style and try to bring things to the table that are are gonna make stalker its own being that's gonna separate it from the pack so that you can really draw attention to it and and not just get lost in the sea of superheroes yeah it's a flooded market You're, you're you're boldly stepping out into something that is is a flooded market and it's a challenging thing to stand out you got to find a way to do something unique within the sort of framework of what you've chosen to work within, which is going to be very hard. I would say that the thing that I liked probably the most about this comic that really made it feel like it stood out a lot was that broken up timeline storytelling. And I feel like as you move forward, it's going to get tighter. And I think that's really cool. If they ongoingly, if Bradley ongoingly gets to a new story arc and starts at the end, and then jumps around and gets it so that it's really smooth and clear to understand, that could be a reason to really read this. Could stand it out in a big way. And he does does a very ambitious job, but not a totally successful job of, of you know keeping a good rhythm and giving that sense of urgency. Because that's important when there's superheroes trying to fight the bad guys and save the good guys. You have to feel kind of like, oh man, oh man, oh man, if they wait a moment longer, so-and-so is going to get away or so-and-so is going to die or so-and-so is going to set that bomb off. Like you've got to have that sense of urgency. Superhero comics live and die on the reader feeling like nervous about something about to happen or, you know, hurry up Superman, you know, like that, that is important in superhero comics. And this with the jumping around, that's diminished a little bit. But at the same time, I think the jumping around is hands down probably the most unique thing in this whole comic. So anyway, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I'm glad we read it. You can go check it out. It's sundaysuperheroes.com. That's sunday-superheroes.com. And guys, your website's really frustrating. <laughs> but it's all there and it's all there for free. So go ahead and check it out. But uh, definitely definitely kind of a an odd way to display comics on their website. Um, Issue 5 comes out in April. What what? Yeah, so we'll have to check it out uh, and see what's up with that then. Anyway, thanks for listening to Geek Life. We always love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklife at pandamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor can go to our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and fill out the form located there. Contributing to Pandamanga can take the form of making suggestions of comics to read, review, or even be hosted by pandamanga.com. And of course, we're always looking for new people to join in the fight against... I don't know. We're not fighting against anything. We're the fight, fight for indie comics and self-published artists. Oh, and we're also always looking for people who will pay us. For example, Tesla. <laughs> Tesla. What's it with you listen. and John? Seriously, you guys are like, I want a Tesla. <laughs> well, here's the thing. John's not here to speak up for himself, so Good I'm here for, in his place. Tesla, trust me. Do yourself a favor. Partner up with us. Give us Teslas. And trust me, your sales and reputations will go through the roof. <sighs> I'm the Brian, and I approve this message. <laughs> Music has been provided by AirPlus Recordings. As always, links to the artists and songs featured on this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like to learn more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is John and New Game Moon! Go read some comics.
Oh my god, have you heard the the uh what is it? It's Episode an Amazon 21. review for men's hair removal gel? No. No. <laughs> I'm just going to record this. It's fucking hilarious. Hold on. We're we're never getting to this fucking comic. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, this is for Vite with a V hair removal gel cream, 200 milliliters in the health and beauty section of Amazon.com. After having been told my danglies look like an elder Rastafarian, elderly Rastafarian, I decided to take the plunge and buy some of this, some of this as previous shaving attempts have only been mildly successful and I nearly, <laughs> nearly put my back out trying to reach the more difficult bits. Being a bit romantic, I thought I would do the deed on the Mrs. Birthday as a bit of a treat. I ordered it well in advance, and working in the North Sea, I considered myself a bit above some of the characters writing the previous reviews and wrote them off as soft office types. Oh, my fellow sufferers, how wrong I was. <laughs> I waited until the other half was tucked, in, tucked up in bed, and after giving some vague hints about a special surprise, I went down to the bathroom. Initially, all went well, and I applied the gel and stood waiting for something to happen. I didn't have to wait long. At first, there was a gentle warmth, which in a matter of seconds was replaced by an intense burning and a feeling I can only describe as being given a barbed wire wedgie by two people intent on hitting the ceiling with my head. Religion hadn't featured much in my life until that night, but I suddenly became willing to convert to any religion to stop the violent burning around the turd tunnel. And what seemed like the destruction of, <laughs> what seemed like the destruction of the meat and two veg. Struggling to not bite through my bottom lip, I tried to wash the gel off in the sink and only succeeded in blocking the plug hole with a mat of hair. Through the haze of tears, I staggered I struggled out of the bathroom across the hall into the kitchen. By this time, walking was not really possible, and I crawled the final yard to the fridge in hope of some form of cold relief. I yanked the freezer drawer open and found a tub of ice cream. I tore off the lid and positioned it under me. With The relief was fantastic, but only temporary, as it melted fairly quickly and the fiery stabbing soon returned. Due to the shape of the ice cream tub, I had only managed to give the had not managed to give the starfish any treatment, and I groped around in the drawer for something else as I was as I was sure my vision was going to fail fairly soon. I grabbed a bag of whatever I what I found out later was frozen sprouts and tore it open, trying to be quiet as I did. I took a handful of them and tried in vain to cleanse some between the cheeks of my arse. This was not uh, doing the trick, and and some of the gel had found its way up the chutney channel, and it felt like the space shuttle was running its engines behind me. This was probably, and hopefully, the only time in my life I was going to wish there was a gay snowman in the kitchen. <laughs> Which I should give, which should give you some idea of the depths I was willing to sink to in order to ease the pain. The only solution my crazed mind could come up with was to gently ease one of the sprouts where no veg had gone before. <laughs> Unfortunately, alerted by the strange grunts coming from the kitchen, the other half chose that moment <laughs> to come and investigate and was greeted by the sight of me. Arse in the air, strawberry ice cream dripping from my bell, <laughs> pushing a sprout up my arse while muttering, ooh, that feels good. <laughs> Understandably, this was a shock to her, and she let out a scream, and as I hadn't heard her come in, it caused an involuntary spasm of shock in, in myself, which resulted in the sprout being ejected at quite a speed in her direction. I can understand... I can understand that having a sprout farted against your leg at 11 at night in the kitchen probably wasn't the special surprise she was expecting, and having to explain to the kids the next day the strange hollow in the ice cream did not improve my status. So to sum it up, Veet removes hair, dignity, and self-respect. That's a Friday night for me. I know! <laughs> you know what's funny is I was totally imagining you as this guy. <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, just immediately thinking, that's what happened. It's like it's like 
hey baby i got a special treat for you and then oh god just like crawling through to the kitchen and then you're just in there just oh that feels good thank god for asparagus i don't know who that guy is but some book publisher or they gotta get a hold they, of him. they gotta He's get a hold of him hilarious. and get him as a writer it's it's just all right yeah okay time to actually do the podcast i figured that would you guys needed to hear that shit all right